This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, the battle against school segregation was considered a great victory of the civil rights movement. But a Black author says one casualty of that struggle was Black college sports. The author of a new book says Chairman Mao was not paranoid when he said the Chinese Communist Party was infested with capitalists. And a venerable institution for black liberation in South Carolina may have to close its doors and shut down its radio station. But first, school desegregation may have been a righteous cause but black college sports was one of the casualties. That's the conclusion drawn by Derek White, a professor of history at the University of Kentucky and author of the book, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, and the history of black college football. White says black colleges were outperforming white colleges in the 1940s and 1950s, producing better athletes. But then desegregation happened. Yes, desegregation is both has a tremendous impact on the athletic experiences of historically black colleges. One of the things that I try to do in this book is talk about how over the course of the first half of the 20th century, that African-American colleges, black colleges, had created what I call a a sporting congregation, that they worked closely with local communities, obviously high schools, black media, in order to really facilitate and recruit talented black athletes to their campus. And so using Florida A&M as a case study, I'm able to show how Jay Gaither, between 1945 and 1959, really facilitated and became really the most dominant football program in the Southeast by producing not only college graduates that played for them, but also high school coaches who did, in turn, sent their best players back to Tallahassee. This entire network is disrupted in part by desegregation, right? And so one of the things that begins to happen that is not often talked about is that the closing of black high school or the repurposing of black high schools in which black high schools become junior highs, black principals lose their job and often become, you know, just teachers. We see the loss of black high school coaches who may be reduced to just an assistant. That this really kind of disrupts this kind of recruiting network or pipeline that had fueled black colleges at Florida A and M, but also a whole host of other schools, whether it's Grambling or Tennessee State or Jackson State. So we see that school desegregation was terribly disruptive to the programs, not just of public schools, which were being integrated, but to black colleges. Right, exactly. And I think one of the things that gets lost is that when we think about Brown and school desegregation, we think about it in terms of resources, right? And I make no qualms that black colleges 
and black high schools are under-resourced. They lack the same kinds of facilities. They like the kind of materials that their white school, public schools had. But what we do in some cases is we undervalue the human resources at black colleges and in black high schools, right? So what's the impact of black teachers and coaches believing in black students' ability to learn, being successful, and what does that mean for their lives and their opportunities? And we see that, especially in the early years of desegregation, that many black teachers lost their job over, you know, anywhere between 30 and 50,000 teachers lost in the first decade of integration. Teachers lost their job. And so I think that there's a sense that, for me at least, that the impact of desegregation was most readily effective on the human resource side in which black, we, we undervalued the value of, of black teachers on black student life. Folks don't usually recognize a golden age when they're in the middle of one. They don't recognize the golden age until it's gone. When was the golden age of black college sports? For me, the golden age of black college sports occurs after World War II through the early 1970s. This is the period in which the impact of World War II cannot be underestimated Obviously, it's been through the GI Bill that allows large numbers of men, in particular African-American men, to attend college. And so before World War II, if we look at the legacy of black colleges across the country, private schools were much more dominant in terms of the way private HBCUs in particular were much more dominant in their impact on America and in the black college world. So we think of Howard, Fisk, Tuskegee as kind of the leaders of black college life. And, and this is also true in terms of athletics and college athletics, that those schools were very, very much powerhouses. After World War II, we see, because of the GI Bill, many returning veterans, those schools have limited capacities, and so they begin, begin to attend public schools. So we see a kind of profound shift. So in Nashville, for instance, Tennessee State becomes a powerhouse, in part because they have the capacity to add more students Florida A&M in the state of Florida surpasses Edward Waters and Bethune-Cookman in part because of their ability to recruit students after World War II. And so this leads to very much athletic changes in which black public colleges, public HBCUs are increasingly dominant in this landscape. And so we see this in football, which is what I talk about in my book. But John McClendon does this as well in basketball at Tennessee State and North Carolina Central. We see this in track and field at Tennessee State. So this is a kind of a, an important phenomenon that we see. And so for me, the irony was that this golden age happened in the midst of desegregation. I remember when the uh, Tuskegee-Morehouse Classic game was a huge social occasion wherever it was played. And people came out in their finest clothing, and uh, it was just a really big deal. But in terms of sports, it's not that big a deal anymore. Yeah, I think one of the things it has, and I think, I mean, I think the Tuskegee-Morehouse game is, is has, I think, decline in value or it's reached kind of the, its capacity in part because of the size of the institutions. But we see, for instance, black colleges have this outsized influence on in college football in particular through its classics, right? So the Bayou Classic that was just held a couple of weeks ago between Southern and Grambling is one of the leading kind of events in the sporting world, right? That's one of the kind of the must-see events. But we see in the state of Florida, 
Florida A&M and Bethune-Cookman play the Florida Classic and, and in Indianapolis, the Circle City Classic. And so these classics, I think, have their legacy going all the way back to the early 20th century was when Lincoln and Howard played on Thanksgiving weekend. And they've kind of evolved into these, like you said, an event. And they're much more than just games, right? That I think the simplistic answer is to say, well, they're, you know, they're just the black version of the Sugar Bowl or the Rose Bowl, but that doesn't really capture the kind of unique quality, I think, that you spoke to, that these become much broader community events. One of the things that I talk about in the book is that when Florida A&M played in the Orange Blossom Classic, which was in Miami from 1947 through the 1980s, they had parties in Overtown. They had a parade through the black part of Miami. They used the power of the Orange Blossom Classic to desegregate South Beach. And so we see that both there's kind of community impact as well as cultural and political impact in these classics as well. Yes, you write that sports were a site of community empowerment, not just protest and achievement. So your commentary basically is one of black community organization not being able to mobilize for empowerment, well, in the case of these events, on a yearly basis. Yeah, I think these are these are really kind of important pieces uh, in in terms of um, the impact and, uh, and the way we can understand uh, historically, at least, the way that sports uh, can affect Black communities. I think one of the things that I'm trying to write against in terms of uh, the scholarship is this kind of narrow sports-focused, really integrationist story. Uh, you know, the story of Glory Road about, you know, UTEP beating University of Kentucky or even the story of Jesse Owens being, you know, his sacrifice and tremendous efforts at Ohio State and the Olympics. But to really think about how black athletes and black communities and black sporting programs through these colleges worked in conjunction with black communities all over the South and all over the country to really use sports as a way of promoting, as, as I say in the book, black empowerment. You write that segregation made white teams seem better than they really were uh, because those teams back in the Jim Crow days didn't have to compete with those better black teams. But with integration, these white teams become better. Yeah, I think part of one of the things that gets happens is that, you know, when we think of the impact of segregation, that the impact of segregation was almost about as much about capital as it was about people and, and, and actual bodies. And what we've been able to see is that integration allows for that uh, predominantly white colleges to incorporate talented black athletes into an already developed material infrastructure in terms of college athletics. And this, of course, will allow that good programs become great. And, and so one of the things that we see is that we rarely see a number of predominantly white players attending historically black colleges. We've seen a few, and most notably the quarterback, the starting quarterback for the last four years at Florida A&M has been Brian Stanley, who's white, and he's going to be all MEAC this year, and he's the all-time leading passer at Florida A&M. But these stories of Ryan Stanley are few and far between over the last 35 or 40 years, which we count desegregation. And so it's been a one-way street in which black talent has been siphoned out of black college that had potentially would have attended black colleges now gone primarily to historically white colleges. 
The decline of black college sports tends in the public view to take much of the luster off of black colleges as such and then give the impression that black folks working on their own, building their own institutions, somehow don't pass the grade. Absolutely. I think that one of the things that one of the big kind of common phrases that we hear from administrators at colleges is that sports are the front porch to the institution, right? And that at a school where I work now, the University of Kentucky promotes its basketball as much as it promotes anything that we as scholars do. And I think that one of the things that that has hurt black colleges is that they have not been able to continually use their athletic success as a means to draw interest into their institution. And so this is part of the going back to the greatness of Eddie Robinson, right, and why he's so essential, right, that Grambling is a small school in northern Louisiana whose media, that the way people think about the school is outsized given its kind of location and its presence in the array of schools in academia. Uh, and in large part, people know of Grambling in part because of its football program. And that, that that ability for schools to use sports, successful sports, as a way of marketing themselves in this modern, in this era of desegregation has not been as prevalent in part because the quality has declined in some cases for many institutions, not all, but some. And so the last point I'll say on this is that, but we see white colleges being able to really use sports to really promote and increase their profile. So for instance, you take a school like Clemson, which has been a, you know, a very small and it's a smaller school in the state of, of, of South Carolina, has an outside football program. And now its current success means that tens of thousands of students across the country are applying, in part because they like football, not because they know anything about the academics or the librarians or the faculty at Clemson, but their interest in football is drawing their interest into the institution. Although the focus of your book is on sports, the guiding intellectual light that you cite is Derek Bell, the constitutional lawyer who has some well-developed views on desegregation. Absolutely. Derek Bell's insights on really rethinking the impact of Brown, both in his early legal scholarship and, and in his later kind of what he calls the legal allegories that he uses really important for me, at least, in thinking, like, how can we prove, how can we think through real-life examples in which we can show, really rethink the impact of desegregation? And so his questions led me to, to really think about the differentiation between material resources and human resources. He says, in one of his essays, he says something about, you know, what is the significance of integration if we integrate black students into classrooms where white teachers and administrators don't think that they can learn. And he says on the flip side, what is it, what's the impact on these same black students when we don't give them all the material resources they need to be successful, right? So he's trying to think about both sides of that equation. And so for me, sports began, uh, is a, a way to kind of think through some of those issues in part in the decades after World War II, the material resources between black colleges and predominantly white colleges were very similar, right? That the coaching, uh, the practice materials, whether you were pads and sleds, 
were all very much the same at the University of Florida as they were at Florida A&M. The difference was the size of the stadium, the kind of money from boosters, those things. But that did not impact the way that the game was taught on the field. And so you could see you had a certain kind of level of, to use the phrase, a similar level playing field when it came to kind of coaching and actual playing that allows for a kind of narrow comparison to help us rethink the broader questions brought on by Brown v. Board of Education and desegregation. That was Professor Derek White speaking from the University of Kentucky. Mao Zedong, the father of the Chinese Revolution and the late leader of the Chinese Communist Party, famously warned that capitalist rotors within the party were determined to turn the country capitalist. A new book by Jun Zhu, a professor of economics at Howard University, says history has proven Chairman Mao to have been right. Professor Zhu's book is titled From Commune to Capitalism, How Chinese Peasants Lost Collective Farming and Gained Urban Poverty. I think what Mao realized was that there's people in power who were inclined to pursue a capitalist road or capitalist roader, as he called it. It was true that there's quite a few among the central leadership and many among the local leadership. I think he realized this, but that it was impossible to actually wipe them out. It was the society, it was the political economy in China that continuously produced this kind of capitalist rotors. So I think, I mean, he tried I mean, after several years of cultural revolution, among other things. And I think eventually he became a little bit more pessimistic towards the end of his life. He talked to his successors, the Gan of Four. He basically told them that after I die, I don't know whatever will happen to you guys, but it won't be very nice. <laughs> it will be quite bloody. So he, he already see what will be coming. But I think he tried his best to kind of postpone that or try to mitigate that tendency. But he, overall, he wasn't successful. Your book is titled From Commune to Capitalism, How China's Peasants Lost Collective Farming and Gained Urban Poverty. And you put the collective farms at the center of this transition, this very rough transition to capitalism. Yes, I think that's the key part. I think the centerpiece of the whole transition started with agriculture, with the dismantling collective farming. Yes. Well, tell us about that. How did the party justify basically dismantling the collectives? Right. The, well, the justified government the, the party gave, and also which we learned throughout our education from middle school to college, is that the collectives, although well-intentioned, were very inefficient economic organizations. And they really provide huge disincentive to members of that community. And that was why people didn't work very hard in the collective. The production was not growing and the huge poverty came with it, which led to the eventual kind of unrest uprising against the collective system. And the peasants, the members of the community collectively dismantled the collectives, which was eventually recognized 
approved by the central government or the party. And that was the official narrative on this process of decollectivization, which was very popular, as you can imagine, because it basically says the collective project is bound to fail because it didn't really cater to human, whatever, human nature, selfish human nature. They didn't provide enough incentives. And any organization or any form of society that's not based on market economy or capitalism is always will fail. So that, that's the key message out of this narrative. And lots of people believe in the story. But you say that that history is all wrong and was invented in order to provide that rationale for capitalist means of production. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's many scholarly discussions about whether the rural collectives were actually efficient or inefficient. But I think most people would, would agree, based on very plain statistics, that the rural collective is doing actually okay. I mean, at the end of this rural commune period, the central government, they themselves recognize the fact that about 30% of the collectives were doing actually very good, very efficient, provided lots of benefits to the members. So they were fine. And another 30% were doing bad. They couldn't function properly. It's hard to sustain themselves. The rest, about 30% or 30, 40% were in the middle. You know, they were not doing great, but they were not doing like miserably. They were, they can get by. So that was the, uh, the official kind of data for the performance of the whole system. But after the get rid of the rural communes and the official narrative became that actually all of them were bad. You know, there is no 30%, 30%, 30%, it was 100% bad. You know, but this, from statistics, it was actually easy to see that um, the Chinese agriculture, the Chinese countryside overall has made huge progress in terms of food production, in terms of education, in terms of healthcare. They have made huge progress during the commune period, which was unparalleled by many other places. And it actually did relatively better than what came after the commune system. So in other words, the enemies of socialism, you say, wanted to delegitimize the experiment in collectivization by saying it failed and thereby stop any further socialist development in China. Yes, I think so. And I think for most part, it, it worked very well. I mentioned this in this book that when I was a student at school, I really bought this story of, of how collectives were actually bad and getting rid of the collectives were good for the people. It was a way to advance socialism towards communism. It was not a, something to get rid of socialism. That's what we, we were taught and people really believe that, I mean, the students, because we saw that the income or the wealth have indeed increased very quickly after 1980s. So we somehow attributed what we had to the cause of getting rid of the collectives. It was until later that when I talked to people who actually work in the commune, work on a farm, and they realized that they were not so enthusiastic 
about this declassification process. I mean, they didn't hate it so much, but they said, well, it's an order from the government. They require us to get rid of the collective right away. So what we can, we, can we do? And I realized, okay, the story is more nuanced than what the official narrative wanted us to believe. To some of us, it appears that the decollectivization in the rural areas was part of the effort to make China less a rural country, but also, and more importantly, to make workers, industrial workers, out of peasants and thereby create this huge new urban working class, many of which don't even have rights in the cities and therefore will take whatever jobs are made available. Yes, absolutely. I think that was the grand strategy of the capitalist, let's say, capitalist rotors in, in China. I mean, we can make a simple comparison between, say, China and, let's say, the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union. Both countries started to have kind of a reform around 1980 or a little after 1980. And, you know, China, like the Soviet Union, started the reform in the cities, targeting the working class. But very soon they realized that it was very hard to do, actually do reform with the working class because the urban working class, they had lots of, let's say, uh, benefits or even privileges under the traditional socialist society. They had guaranteed lifetime employment. They have very good, you know, health care. They have pension, a lot of things. But, you know, if you want to do capitalist, want to do market economy, eventually you're going to take all those benefits away from the workers. You have to try to cut your costs somehow. And that would basically offend the working class very much. When the Chinese government first tried to do some kind of reform in the urban area, it had lots of failures. The workers had lots of resentment against this kind of reform. And when they give, say, autonomy to, say, individual companies or individual firms, instead of cutting costs, what happened was that many companies simply give more bonus to the workers because workers have, still have a lot of say in this whole decision-making process right after the Cultural Revolution. So that wasn't a viable path to go. And that was when China was able to figure out, like, okay, let's go from the countryside. Because in the countryside, the members of the communes or the peasants were less well-organized, and they had less to lose from this transition. And in some cases, if the rural commune were not doing so well, they might actually get better after receiving state subsidies for the agricultural production or other things. So I think it was a smart strategy for the ruling class to make that decision. Well, if you look at the Soviet Union, they didn't have those millions and millions of people working in rural, in the countryside, because it was highly, already highly urbanized, highly industrialized. Most people there were urban working class. I think that created a huge obstacle for the capitalist leaning capitalist voters in Soviet Union to actually make this Chinese type of transition. They have to deal with the urban working class right away in one stroke, which they call the shock therapy. But in China, the ruling class was fortunate to have, you know, they don't have to deal with the urban working class at once. They can first deal with the peasants and turn the peasants, millions of them, into, 
as you call it, this urban working class, but without any rights. You know, it's a huge reserve army. And after 10 years, more than 10 years after the rural reform, after you have accumulated millions of reserve army in the cities, then Chinese government started to implement the urban reform eventually and to replace or to get rid of the old urban working class and replace them with the new workers, uh, the new business, private business. So I think that process contributed to a smoother, uh, more, let's say, successful transition to capitalism. Well, it's only successful if the people put up with it. Are these urban (laughs) workers, many of whom used to be peasants but were displaced, are they showing signs of rebellion against this capitalist mode of production in a communist party-ruled country? We didn't really hear much of this kind of struggle from the migrant workers or the former peasants, now workers. Their struggles were actually very limited. Under the traditional socialist economy, the urban workers did get more in terms of income or benefits compared to an average rural peasant. So when the peasant moved to the city, even though they don't actually get as much as the traditional urban workers under socialism, they could still get more than what they got from the countryside. Obviously, this was taken into the account of the fact that the whole decollectivization reform removed any alternative or socialist alternative from the countryside. So they were comparing the fact that they can work in the hometown as a small peasant doing some small business or moving to the city in a factory, getting some kind of cash income. So it could actually be tempting for them to take the urban alternatives. And also for them, if they don't get as much as they should get, they can still think, okay, I'm just here temporarily. You know, I'm, I'm going to work in this city for three, four years, five years, and I'll go back to start my own small business where, you know, I can always go back to my farm. So that kind of the institution, I think, contributed to the passiveness of the, the migrant or the new working class. But the old working class, the ones who had those privileges or the rights under the traditional socialist kind of uh, institution, they were the more militant, much more militant ones in the struggle. There's, you know, all kinds of anti-privatization struggle or anti-marketization struggle starting from the 1990s were mostly led by this old working class. And I think they still continued until today. China now has the second biggest number of billionaires in the world, right behind the United States. How does the old and new working class react to that? Well, like in the United States, we um, like normal everyday working person don't really talk much about this super, super rich people. I mean, we know conceptually there's a 1%, but it's rare for us to meet any 1%. I think that created some kind of, uh, this kind of distance actually helps the 1% because, you know, who knows who you are? I mean, maybe you get money from somewhere, but we don't know. But in China, I think the situation is very different in that this newly rich people, this 1%, they got rich in a relatively short time, in just 10, 20 years. And they got the money right from the collective money or the collective wealth that people have created during the struggle under socialism. 
during privatization, when hundreds of thousands of workers can easily be displaced or laid off overnight, and the entire factory, the entire mine, entire whatever building will be taken over by a small group of management or some kind of a corrupt official. And they immediately got rich, become super rich. And people can see that. It's observable. It's not like something, oh, maybe this guy got rich 200 years ago, the family. No, this guy got rich just five years ago by stealing our money. So that resentment is very, is very strong towards these very rich people. You know, it got to a point where it was very popular for scholars, I mean, the right-wing scholars, especially the economists in China to talk about, oh, it's not productive, it's counterproductive to have this anti-rich sentiment. The Chinese people should deal with this kind of inequality and, and learn how to go from there instead of hating rich people. But it tells you something about this sentiment, general sentiment in China. If, because people know that they got the wealth, they got the income, from very illegal or unjust uh, means. I think that's how people perceive this kind of huge inequality or this huge number of wealthy people. So that supposedly Chinese saying, it is good to be rich, is actually Chinese government propaganda trying to justify why lots of folks in high places have gotten rich in just the last decade or so. Right. When the post-Mao leadership, Deng Xiaoping, first popularized the slogan, getting rich is glorious, I think at the time, people didn't have much idea what really it means to get rich. Many people thought like, okay, if I have a skill, if I do a small, like small vendor stuff, besides my regular work, I can get some extra cash. But that is okay. But people very, I think, quickly realized that by getting rich is glorious actually didn't really refer to the normal everyday working people. It referred to those small group of ruling class that wanted to convert public wealth into their own wealth into private pockets. And that is totally different from, you know, doing some actual work, you know, doing some actual cash. And so, yeah, people, I think nowadays people rarely talk about this, getting rich is glorious because people know it's not glorious. That was Professor Zheng Zhu speaking from Howard University. For decades, the Malcolm X Center for Self-Determination has fought on the side of the oppressed in Greenville, South Carolina, and in the world. However, the bill collectors may be about to shut the center down and silence its radio station, WMXP. We spoke with the center's director, veteran activist, Ifia Wangaza. The landowner where our tower is located contacted me to say that I would either have to make a substantial rent payment by January 15th or he wants the tower moved. And so what he represents is the second of two major donors, forebearers that have allowed the center to continue to exist. The first being the mortgage holder for the center itself, and the second being the landowner for the tower site. And he's wanting me to give him like $5,000 on or before January 15th or make arrangements 
for the tower to be moved. And, of course, as you know, with radio, moving a tower is more than just a notion, more even than just picking it up, moving it someplace. It means engineering studies and meeting FCC requirements. In other words, the task is all but prohibitive. Correct. Now, tell us about the work of the Malcolm X Center, its history, and of MXP Radio. The Malcolm X Center was founded, well, we began organizing in the late 80s, and we opened in uh, 1991. We've had one move due to gentrification from our original site, which was in downtown Greenville, in the heart of the business district. We moved from there when that building was sold to where we are now, and we've been at our current location for the past 18 years. And it's always been hanging on by a thread. The work that we do is a multi-range national, local, and international with a focus on human rights. We do work around social and political prisoners. We have a highly successful record in bringing, as we called the campaign at the time that we began it 10 years ago, putting U.S. political prisoners and imprisoned human rights defenders on the global human rights agenda, which we were able to do and to have political prisoners specifically named, ranging from, of course, the usual Mumia Abu-Jamal and, and Lennon Peltier, but we were able to add to that Jamil Alameen, um, Lynn Stewart, the Move 9, as well as the Angola 3, and to actually have the UN Human Rights Commission Treaty Review Committees to specifically refer to the various cases and to apply pressure on the United States to take favorable action. And while it's barely recognized, we were successful in not only having those references, but actually having the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights of the United Nations to raise those cases on behalf of various individuals. On a social prisoner's human rights level, we, of course, have been doing support work since 1978 here in South Carolina. We have been highly supportive of the brothers in the state of South Carolina, uh, the Free South Carolina Movement, which was formally organized in response to the historic Lee County state-orchestrated slaughter, where the state specifically organized, collected, and imprisoned folk in a common prison facility where they knew it was not only understaffed, but in decrepit conditions and basically put them in a room to kill each other off, which resulted in seven brothers being killed and over 20 folk being seriously injured. We continue to work with them to this day to help them to deal with the trauma of that experience, to deal with the continuing insensitivity of the system, and to be able to express themselves and to keep the public and each other informed of what's going on across the state of South Carolina. We do anti-gentrification housing support. We've been able to slow down 
the evictions at a local subsidized housing neighborhood where a Colorado company, the Monroe Group, was able to come in, buy the property, and was ham-handedly just threatening to evict people willy-nilly. We were able to get pro bono and public legal services attorneys to come in and to represent the tenants, specifically those who were targeted, and needless to say, high on their list were those who had the audacity to resist. In addition to that, we are dealing with economic justice issues where in um, the city and county of Greenville, the average income for black people is around fifteen dollars to $16,000 with the rising rents of a studio apartment being $1,500. That, of course, resulting in folk being pushed out of the city, requiring uh, transportation. So transportation is winds up being a part of the fight that we wage, helping folk to recognize their rights and helping them to build a capacity to advocate for themselves and, and on their own behalf. We educational justice where we have white kids, one instance in particular, a young white girl on uh, Instagram with a picture of herself having a rifle in one hand and a sign in her other, the sign saying, we shoot niggas for free, and the school district refusing and most specifically, the law enforcement in-school cop refusing to arrest her and prosecute her for threats. Of course, they passed that off as First Amendment rights. A recent case that has arisen involves a group of white kids who didn't like their teacher coming together in a chat room listing various activities that they might engage in to get, quote-unquote, get rid of her, ranging from uh, loosening the lug nuts on the tires on her car to just taking an AR-15 and then shooting her. So we do a wide range of activities in uh, challenging the curriculum, especially the curriculum that it relates to the teaching of the Holocaust of enslavement, where third graders, eight-year-old kids are taken to this made-up plantation, are taught that Africans were uh, worked there in exchange for room and board as opposed to having been enslaved. Reparations is an other issue with which we are involved. We are co-founders of National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America in COBRA, and um, have continued to educate and organize around the issue of reparations, even when it was not as visible as it is currently in its ebb and flow of visibility. We held in 1991 the uh, National Encobra Conference in Charleston, South Carolina, which energized, inspired the visibility at that time, uh, which was commensurate with the launch, John Conyers' HR 40, and we were able to make reparations again a household word. I say that it ebbs and flows because I think that it's important that we recognize that the struggle for reparations has gone on ever since the end of the Civil War with Cali House and 
colleagues with whom she worked and was incarcerated. Mary Frances Berry has a, a wonderful book about those efforts. We uh, organized, of course, in conjunction with the Millions for Reparation March that was held in D.C. I think it was 92. That was also reorganized in conjunction with the Durban 400, going to Durban, South Africa with the World Conference Against Racism, where the Holocaust with enslavement, colonialism, um, racism were declared crimes against humanity as opposed to civil or criminal domestic matters. We have a, a long history of addressing issues that impact the African community. Mass incarceration is one of the other issues that we have consistently worked against, especially as it relates to the death penalty. We served with various organizations, including Amnesty International, over the years bringing the death penalty into disrepute as we listen and watch for the Trump administration and its call for reinstatement or reapplication of the death penalty and continue to look for ways that we can undermine any effort in that regard. We support the struggle for maintaining the rights of African descendant immigrants and in honor of the fact that it is our struggle in this country that resulted in the quotas and the prohibitions that existed up until uh, the 60s that we fought and had lifted so that people of African descent would be able to come into this country with reasonable opportunities. Certainly the Malcolm X Center is deeply embedded in Greenville and has been deeply embedded for a long time on issues that should be supported by lots of mainstream Black organizations. But was that the case? That has not been the case. The Malcolm X Center functioning in the South, although we, again, we have received a certain level of support, surprisingly, in most instances, the greatest support has come from liberal whites, more often than not outside of the South, which actually is traditionally the case. You know, the local people, first of all, have been encouraged and rewarded for operating as if they have to make a choice between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King without knowing anything about either one of them. The dog whistle being that white folks favor the sanitized version of Martin Luther King and therefore allegiance to Martin Luther King or articulated allegiance to Martin Luther King shores one of not being classified as one of those bad Negroes. That's one part of it. The other part of it is is that, as I said earlier, the average income for blacks in the city and county of Greenville is like $16,000 a year. And what that means is, is that folk are so busy trying to survive that there's little else that gains their attention other than the church, which is the traditional institution that we maintain. 
we challenge the community to support other institutions in addition to the church, since we know that they're not going to do it instead of the church. But given the wage stagnation, given the hostility towards dissonant ideas and approaches, we have suffered greatly for a lack of resources. And again, that's not unusual for the Deep South, and South Carolina is the Deep South. South Carolina has the highest eviction rate in the country, the highest eviction rate in the country, which is an expression of hostility and the level of violence against poor people. And we are directly impacted by that. With gentrification, it has escalated. Where the national eviction rate is slightly above 2% in South Carolina, it's almost 9%. So while there is goodwill in some quarters, as opposed to indifference or fear, the resources that are available are extremely limited. So we have heretofore personally underwritten and filled in the gaps that have not been available, that have occurred as a result of lack of funding. We this week lost our second largest supporter, which is the landowner where our tower, radio tower for WMXP is located, who has advised us of his tax increase as a result of gentrification and is demanding that we come up with $5,000 towards the cost. And we haven't made rental payments, admittedly, in years at his largesse and his acquiescence and forbearance, but that we must come up with $5,000 on or before January 15th. The likelihood short of outside assistance of our meeting that demand is very low and means that we have to begin to take the steps necessary in order to have the tower moved, which more likely than not means either a lease management agreement with some other non-community, non-black community formation, or the station going dark. Now, what's all this mean in terms of your activism and the activism of your team? I will continue. I'm a lifelong uh, human rights advocate. I was born into the movement, so I don't know anything different. However, I'm not clear at this point in time what that's going to look like in the future. If that's going to mean writing, if that's going to mean continuing to organize on a broader level with less notoriety, less capacity actually is what it means when we don't have the radio station. Does that mean that folk are willing to put together to do a newspaper or do I become social media adept? It's not clear as to what that's going to mean in terms of my continued human rights advocacy. Well, if anything's going to be salvaged, and I'm sure some will, in terms of the legacy, that still will require money. So how can people be of help? Well, we have WMXP 
webs.com is our website and wmxp955 at gmail.com is our PayPal address and our cash app is SC Stolen Lives. Our mailing address is 202 Lavinia Avenue, Greenville, South Carolina, 29601. So any broad range of a variety of approaches that folk can take to support the dire, sorely needed, and deeply appreciated. That was Ifir Wangaza of the Malcolm X Center for Self-Determination in Greenville, South Carolina. The U.S. corporate media report almost nothing from the Syrian side in the eight-year-long war against U.S.-backed Islamic jihadists. Instead, corporate media parrot the version of events put out by the U.S. government and its allies. The European media also black out the views of the Syrian government. Stephen Sahiuni is a Syrian-American and chief editor of the political journal Mideast Discourse. Sahiuni recently appeared on The Taylor Report on Canadian radio. He says the Italians are also censoring the news from Syria. On November 26th, the Ukraine News TV, Italian, did an interview with President Assad in Damascus, and it was supposed to be published on... Uh, on the 2nd of uh, December, uh, then uh, they sent a letter and they said, we're going to postpone it. Then they said, okay, then they, but without giving any reasons, they just said for technical stuff. Then they, uh, the second time, they said they're going to postpone it. In the end, uh, the Syrian uh, presidency, the office and the media office said, okay, if they're not going to publish it, they're going to put it under all the Syrian media on Monday, Mm-hmm. at 9 p.m. Damascus time, and that's what they did. Mm-hmm. And uh, the interview was 25 minutes, and after we heard the interview, we knew why they did not want it on the Italian TV, for many reasons. Or number one, President Assad said that the European Union in general, and France in particularly, uh, supported and funded and trained the terrorists and on the war on Syria from day one, and they had a big role on the war, and they and uh, it's their fault that all of these refugees are all over Europe. The Syrian refugees are in the millions all over Europe. It's because of they're in their own hands because they uh, funded and supported these terrorists, and they trained them, and they gave them weapons. And we all saw in the past years the weapon storages for the terrorists, where they made they were made in Europe, made in Bulgaria, and made in other countries of the European Union. Also. Uh, the information came out several times in the past nine years about how the Europeans they were funding. So that was one part that uh, we figured out that they did not want that information to go out to the European people and they did not want to go to show a Syrian president uh, like Syria is fighting terrorism because mm-hmm. the Western media, they want to show that in their mind, they want to show their people, Europeans and the Americans, they want to show their people that the Syrian government is killing their people. That's the image that they want to show. In reality, we all know that's not true. Mm-hmm. There's tears uh, from all around the world. It's not like before. Today, the Syrian army and the Russians are progressing, but mm-hmm. they are fighting terrorism. Who the Europeans and the Americans and the Gulf countries, they're the one who started this war, and they're the one who destroyed Syria, and they're the one who made millions of refugees 
uh, Syrians to be refugees and hundreds of thousands to be killed. Mm-hmm. And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.